Our philosophy and literature, two distinct disciplines, divided by a common language. Emphatically not, according to Michael Mack and Barry Stocker, editors of the new Palgrave Handbook of Philosophy and Literature. In this podcast, we caught up with Michael and Barry to learn how the power of the imagination, literary uses of language, and an interest in ethics link the two approaches tightly together. This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. Hi, I'm Alistair Brown, editor of Read Research English at Durham, uh, and I'm sitting in an office uh, with Michael Mack, who's Associate Professor in English, uh, also here at Durham. Hi, Michael. Hi. And joining us through Skype is um, Barry Stocker, who describes himself in his rather brilliant and eclectic Stocker blog as a British philosopher based in Istanbul, um, specifically at Istanbul Technical University. So hi, Barry, through Skype. Uh, Hello, Alistair. Uh, Great to see you and uh, uh, Michael coming in from Durham. Well, in a way, the fact that we're worlds apart and divided by this computer screen is appropriate to the subject of our conversation today, because we might think of literature and philosophy as being these two very distinctive disciplines. But actually, Michael and Barry have collaborated on a new and, it has to be said, impressively enormous book published by Palgrave entitled The Handbook of Philosophy and Literature. And across 29 chapters, The Handbook of Philosophy and Literature explores the relations, the overlaps, and sometimes the tensions and differences between philosophy and literature as disciplines. Uh, It asks us how philosophy incorporates aspects of literature, and also how literature incorporates aspects of philosophy. And it concludes in a way that that sees the two as being in very close relation with one another. And continuing that subject of relationships, um, Michael and I, we're here sitting in this English literature department in uh, the northeast of the UK. Barry, you're a philosopher uh, over there in Istanbul. So what drew you two together across these miles that separate you and across these two different uh, two different subject areas? Well, uh, it's an accident of uh, putting uh, the book together. I hadn't uh, ever had any contact with Michael before, uh, but I was, uh, uh, you know, I was working with Palgrave on this uh, book, and I needed, uh, uh, you know, an editor from the other side of the alleged division. So, you know, I, I just look for uh, someone who's got a, you know, a good record uh, in, in this area. You know, obviously, Michael has some extremely interesting publications in this area. So, so really, uh, it's uh, knowing him through uh, what he's done. Uh, and he was the ideal person for, you know, to be a collaborator on this project. And you were keen to get involved in there for Michael? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I was, was great that Barry contacted me and uh, I immediately liked the idea and uh, I think... We share the same chemistry and wavelength also as regards approaching the field. Uh, we both share a sense that the field has been looked at uh, from a rather biased perspective previously, and Barry was very keen to uh, give equal space to the literary element and not you know, to marginalize it. And I loved it. I, I, I loved Barry's uh, idea and project. I was completely behind it from <laughs> the beginning, yeah. Good, good. So a real, a real meeting of minds. And actually that comment on bias uh, leads me to a, a question, which is that um, when we were setting up this interview, Michael, you said in an email that your handbook is very unlike a similarly named one already published elsewhere by a publisher who will remain nameless, <laughs> because your collection treats the two disciplines of literature and philosophy on a par, um, rather than demoting literature as being less intellectually valuable or, or valid. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by treating them on a par 
Yes, I mean, uh, treating treating them on a par intellectually, because literature has been and still is, I think, demoted uh, as being simply passive or simply illustrative, giving an image of uh, you know what great philosophers have achieved, for example. Uh, the same actually goes for the field of science and medicine, I must say. Uh, uh, literature is there to show us what medicine does or can do or doesn't do, uh, and that's it. Or literature takes on board scientific achievements and you know somehow represents and illustrates them. Uh, it's it's almost like um, you know literature has the role of a handmaid or something or of a and and philosopher philosophy is more the um, you know traditional uh, discipline in charge. Uh, driving the ship, as it were. Barry, I wonder if um, wonder if you could come in on that then. So, so philosophy is there as a sort of uh, fixed hours employer, drawing on literature as a kind of menial uh, menial support. Uh, well, <laughs> I wasn't approaching Michael to be my servant, but um, I the fields myself. I, I mean, my first degree is philosophy, but I did some literature classes, uh, and my MA was philosophy and literature. And for my doctorate, I was actually going to go all the way into literature. But then, in the end, I think I decided I preferred to spend a bit more time with philosophy texts. So if I said to you I have in mind a prejudice of philosophers and philosophy as being clinical and cool-headed and mm. rational and a prejudice in my mind of literary types and literature and authors as being creative and innovative and, and stylish and showy, you presumably would want to challenge that um, presumption. Mm. And I'm struck that the first section of the handbook actually does that by thinking about the ways in which philosophical writing, far from being this clinical, cold, dispassionate mm. type of writing, actually makes use of, of literary techniques. Barry, what were, some, what were some of those literary techniques that you drew out of philosophical practice? Well, uh, dialogue and uh, aphorism uh, really stand out. Uh, of course, the Platonic dialogue uh, really stands out. It's a relatively unusual form in the history of philosophy. I mean, apart from Plato, there are limited examples, but but it has a big inf- impact on the development of the novel. Or p- people who've written about the development of the novel have seen the Platonic dialogue um, as as a presence and influence. And even if the Platonic dialogue hasn't been used that widely by philosophers, I mean, it clearly sets up a kind of idea of how there is interchange uh, in philosophy. Uh, but the aphorism is, is something that, that we see developed in the, uh, well, 19th century. Uh, yeah, particularly Nietzsche is someone who, who I think really uh, draws things together. He's not unique uh, as a literary philosopher, as how philosophy of, of a kind which really reflects uh, creativity should have a literary aspect. Uh, anyway, he does that himself, and he uh, uh, he doesn't do a conventional history, but he's picking up on things which are in you know, the, the use of the uh, aphorism in French 17th century essayists, uh, the use of the essay in uh, Montaigne in the 16th century France, the kind of use of the fragment in the kind of light, late 18th century German Romantic thinkers. And before that, philosophy uh, you, you, was written in poetry. So, you know, right from the beginning, uh, philosophy is picking up on, you know, literary forms. Of course, before we have what is consciously uh, regarded as philosophy, uh, you know, Homer was thought of not just as a, a literary figure. If Homer existed, it's just a, a name. We're not quite sure what it stands for, but Homeric texts were taken as sources of knowledge. 
if we're going to talk about sovereignty, uh, in some ways literature comes first. Not necessarily in a very uh, pure intellectual deductive way, but, but as a matter of historical development. Mm. Or one could also say, in a way, um, you know, philosophy has always been part of literature because lit the term literature is a very recent one, isn't it? It, it what we now call literature as a distinct uh, way of writing uh, only came into the into being with the birth of paper money, didn't it? I mean, you know, with uh, speculation and you know high finance capitalism, the term literature came into being before it was just you know it was all you know Homer was. In a way, yeah, what's philosophy? What's uh, knowledge? What's you know human knowledge, science, whatever you, whatever you want to call it? Uh, it? It was part of the sciences or of the, of the branches of human knowledge, and and the specialization, this narrow specialization, is, is only of only a couple of hundred years old, really. And that's something our literature students sometimes find a bit surprising, I think. They think they're studying this esteemed and tr very traditional discipline, mm. and actually the fact that it's got a relatively recent history as a discipline. Yeah. Whereas actually philosophy, taken back much, much further, yep. can be quite um, an insight for them. Yep. And then, of course, they start their discipline and they start studying literary texts, but then also names like Aristotle on tragedy pop up to their radar. Mm. Uh, if they're feeling intellectually confident, they'll start to engage with Jacques Derrida and deconstruction. <laughs> Some of them might you know, pick up on Michel Foucault. and So everywhere they start to look, instead of seeing just literary critics, they start to find philosophers. Mm. And one of the sections of the book was also about how literature and the analysis of literature draws on philosophers as a mode of uh, literary critical analysis. Um, do you want to say a bit more about that and how literary criticism is actually philosophically focused? Yes, I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I would go so far to say that theory would be kind of philosophy, but that is not acknowledged you have this um, rubric called theory and there you are allowed to bring in philosophy uh, but not really calling it philosophy and it is really philosophy if one goes back to what Barry was describing the long history of writing let's put it that what literature really means when it when it became a discipline of its own is really the fictitious the, the, the fiction um, I mean, fiction, how fiction itself governs, governs can govern our lives. Uh, and, um, and literature might actually not just represent that and imitate that and copy that, but also by in doing so make us aware of how we are, you know, locked up in illusions in, um, you know, how we buy into promises and, uh, are bound to be disappointed, but we can't see that because we are so bound up in, you know, the attraction of the illusion of the fiction in, in real life. I think what, what the literary side, if you, if you define it narrowly as fiction, brings to the field of literature and philosophy is that, you know, the way philosophy also is about, it's about untruth, isn't it? It's about, it's about the love of truth. And it's about, you know, how uh, we often uh, lose truth. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thinking about literature as fiction, associated with fiction in particular, um, reminds that, of course, philosophers make use of fictions, don't they? And things like thought experiments, mm. where you conjure up a hypothetical, uh, sometimes slightly extreme example. You in speculate. Order to, where you speculate. Is that yeah. something that featured in the collection, Barry? The idea of thought experiments as a kind of literary fiction? Well, we... Uh do you have a, a chapter, in fact, by uh, a, a Turkish um, a philosopher? It's uh, someone called uh, Ilhan Inan. He's published a book in uh, England on, on uh, curiosity. So, yeah, he, he contributed um, a, a chapter 
on this issue of how philosophers themselves use fictions, use thought experiments. So, so even the most apparently dry and you know, conceptually rigorous parts of philosophy, so, so in some ways, the more conceptually rigorous they supposedly are, the more you know, imagination plays a role in developing thought experiments. So, so there's maybe an interesting trade-off there. In some ways, the, the more you, you try for a, a kind of conceptual rigor, which is supposed to be the opposite of being literary, actually, the more you, you actually need to bring back imagination, you need to bring back something fictional and literary to, to be a source of argument. You can't actually cut yourself off, it, it turns out. That's fascinating how ideas of the imagination cuts across both of those disciplines. But thinking about it from the other side, the, the value of literary imagination in tackling some of those real-world issues that um, philosophy directly engages with. I was struck that at the end of the collection, words like uh, law and ethics and economy, they start popping up as your contributors are starting to explore some of the practical even real-world applications of philosophy as it teaches us and, and helps us to think about some really significant human challenges. So does philosophy have anything to say about the value of the literary imagination for rising to those same sorts of challenges? Can it tell us about how we're not just reading for fun, we're reading for a purpose that engages with these real-world problems, just as philosophy does? I mean, philosophy perhaps deals with uh, literary imagination in two levels. Uh, one is this rather implicit way that um, I've uh, just described. I, I mean, the other is the way that goes back to Aristotle, I suppose, which is to say that um, you know, literature is closer to uh, philosophy than history. Uh, as a word, to, to imagine uh, what is possible, what is conceivable, is closer to uh, philosophy than the description of what is. I mean, it's quite a strange statement in a way because uh, history and literature would be difficult to distinguish in Aristotle's own time. So interesting, you make such a sharp distinction. Uh, and you know, I'm personally very uh, interested in the way that in the 18th century, the idea of uh, historical studies and literary studies uh, really grow together. I, I don't think philosophy is that much uh, theorised ways in which uh, writers should use imagination. So much as philosophers um, yeah, at important transitional creative moments give a lot of uh, importance to literature. Mm. So I think uh, for Adam Smith, uh, his lectures on literature uh, actually belong to the early part of his career and it wasn't published in his lifetime. But, but you know, we, we have the lectures and we, we can see it's part of how he develops the idea that there's you know, and it, what we call an economy, that there's exchange, that there's trade, that they're related to the possibility of human sympathy, which is related to ethical thought in Smith. That these, these ways which humans interact are all dependent on imagination and um, the, the, uh, a capacity for you know, being in the other person's head. Uh, and actually, that, 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 that starts with talking about literature. And uh, something similar with Jim Battista Vico, you know, I feel a slightly underrated figure, he really... Uh, uh, addresses a lot of what comes up in your life later in terms of history and literature and social science. Uh, so, so really, uh, he, he develops the idea that imagination is uh, always part of uh, there being a, a human life, human institutions. I mean, myself, I don't so much get into what philosophers say directly uh, about how writers uh, approach literature, so much as how philosophers... Um, or people who aren't even institutionally philosophers 
develop arguments which are recognised to be philosophical, which also have to bring in literary imagination. So philosophical thinking and engaging with ethical issues always requires these acts of empathy and acts of acts of the imagination. Yeah. And I think that's something you've also written on, isn't it, Michael? That yeah. idea of the imagination that you get through reading literature or writing literature yeah. actually helping you engage with the world in some meaningful way. I mean, Martha Nussbaum is... I think um, she she focuses on the empathy part in her in her philosophy of literature, if you wish, which is a very important aspect. And but, but what is what is often overlooked, uh, especially as regards real life, is is again this area in which uh, um, our lives, our economic lives in particular, but also other aspects of our lives. Are governed by fictions, by speculations, you know, and 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 what we. I mean, the whole difference between practice and theory is itself a bit uh, flawed, because when we when we uh, spectator like uh, theoretically understand what our practice is, we are able to also change our practice or fine tune our practice or be aware uh, of what our practice is, and that is hugely relevant practically. To come back of to your question of practice. I mean, as another area where literature and philosophy interconnect, they're both contemplative because they're mainly based on reading or on discussing, mm -hmm. uh, which is contemplative too. I mean, what we are doing here is contemplative too. But contemplation is, of course, itself a form of action. And, of course, neuroscientifically, if you imagine something uh, reading, your brain is actually as active, if not more active, imagining the deeds than you did it yourself. So even on a neuroscientific level, the distinction between reading and acting uh, is, is rather flawed or between contemplation and action is rather flawed. And so, you know, coming back to the practical issue, when we, when we, when you ima when we imaginatively act out or act through or, or think through our real life settings or, uh, um, we are also able to change what we do in real life because we, we gain a different perspective. Uh, we are able to um, see different avenues. Well, if we turn from the imagination to the real, uh, one of the things that's very real is the fact that you've got 29 chapters in your book. <laughs> 29 chapters, that's a lot of material. Now, obviously, neither of you will want to show a, a preference for any one of your authors over another. But among that collection of 29 chapters, um, were there any interesting surprises or highlights or things that fired your own imaginations? Or perhaps uh, not enormous surprises, but uh, you know, some things I hadn't come across were some uses of literature in philosophy I hadn't come across. Like looking at Cervantes as a psychological thinker, so, so really a crossover between philosophy, psychology and uh, uh, literature. So, so that was interesting for me, or a chapter which uh, really um, looks at phenomenology in terms of literary texts. So there's certainly moments like that where literary text uh, uh, actually contributes to our understanding of what psychology is or what phenomenology is and so on. Uh, that, that is good because this is what we're aiming for in the collection. We don't want to see literature as the illustration of philosophy. Indeed, yeah. I mean, for, for me, it was, it was also the, um, what really impressed me uh, is the, uh, the range of interconnections to so many disciplines from philosophy and literature, you know, to economics, the law, you know, uh, psychoanalysis, you know, so many, so many interconnections to fields which uh, are sometimes assumed to be uh, completely different, uh, but they're at the heart of it, actually. And that, that is perhaps also unique about our, 
about the handbook uh, is that it shows really uh, how um, an interdisciplinary engage engagement with philosophy and literature helps us see a new a whole range of fields in a, in a new light uh, and perhaps in a new life too thanks so so the range of approaches and bringing those two disciplines together that yeah. seems to be very firmly something that you managed to get through this handbook i guess the cruel question though is given that you had 782 pages that you had to had to edit and work through what areas are there still left to explore? What didn't you get in? What what work do you still want to do next, as it were? Right. Well, my own uh, project, I suppose, is to build on something I, I addressed a bit in, uh, in my own contributions, which is do more work on, on this uh, 18th century Italian thinker I've already mentioned, Jim Batista Vico, uh, and his use of Homer. I've done quite a lot of this in teaching, uh, teaching Homer in relation to uh, Vico, uh, I've also been doing quite a lot of teaching and thinking about Montaigne. So, so uh, really, I, I want to build on that, probably with Montaigne, to, to think about how, how uh, he contributes to ethics in particular, they're not only ethics. And uh, with Vico, how he puts the uh, relationship between uh, literature and more philosophical concerns, really at the heart of the development of disciplines we now know as humanities and social science. Uh, Michael, what about for you? What were the things that, in editing and producing this book, you suddenly thought, right, I really want to go on that avenue and explore that further as uh, after this project's over? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's perhaps somehow related to um, Barry's work on, on Vico. Namely, I have an, uh, a strong interest in, in another critic of Descartes, namely Spinoza, who is sometimes seen as Cartesian, which he is, I mean, obviously he's partly, but but he's actually sharply ironic and quite, um, in a way, again, literary in his ironic treatment of Descartes, satirical, one could say. And uh, what I'm what I'm interested in this respect is how um, Spinoza is actually a philosopher of disappointment, which uh, it comes again back to his critique of how philosophy itself. Uh, how the mind, how rationalism itself, how Descartes, if you wish, is actually doomed to be disappointed uh, when uh, he, Descartes, or when rationalism believes that the mind is in full control of the body. Uh, it just doesn't work uh, because the mind itself is part of the body. It's, 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 there's an identity of mind and body, according to Spinoza. And that means that the mind itself is affected by various kind of uh, figmenta by various um, illusionary um, fiction-like uh, input uh, which uh, our sensory apparatus produces and our mind takes it to be real but it isn't um, so it's for me you know it, 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 uh, it brought me more to this uh, new project which I call um, uh, disappointment the destructive element in literature and philosophy from um, from the French Revolution to to today and that that was for me the uh, the outcome. It's a huge thing, uh, but of course the the Palgrave handbook is even huger, so <laughs> so <laughs> much more ambitious thing than my current project. So I can take heart from from that. Yeah. Well, it's um it's kind of ironic having started by talking about how this handbook really energizes that debate about literature and philosophy, and we've used kind of words like the imagination and empathy and society 
as cutting across both of those. And uh, you've really made a case through this uh, monumental handbook and also through through our conversation for the value of seeing the two things together. But it's kind of ironic that we therefore end on a on a note of disappointment. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this discussion and haven't found it too disappointing. For listeners, if you have you want to explore further, uh, make sure you follow Barry and Michael's uh, excellent work. Uh, you can find Barry on Twitter as Barry underscore Stocker or visit his excellent blog, which has topics ranging from Adam Smith and poverty uh, all the way through to Brexit over at stockerb.wordpress.com. Uh, and you can find out more about Michael Mack via your search engine of choice uh, or indeed by following Read Research English at Durham at readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you would like to comment on the podcast you have just listened to, or if you want to download more of our podcasts, visit our blog at www.readdurhamenglish.wordpress.com. 